For years, I was so fed up with shampoo, I just stopped washing my hair. I quit completely. I was so sick of poofy, frizzy, limp hair, distorting my natural oils. Until a few months ago, I found Modern Mammals, and it changed everything. And by the way, right now you can visit modernmammals.com and use code LSS for 10% off. So check that out. So look, I heard about this through the podcast, and before I agreed to advertise, they sent it to me, and I was reluctant. But let me tell you, I should not have been. This stuff is absolutely magical. My hair felt better, smelled way better, and most importantly, looked better. And I know it will do the same for you as well. It doesn't have those hair-ruining chemicals like other products, and it doesn't leave any leftover residues. It works. Don't believe me? Go read their awesome reviews online as well. Go to ModernMammals.com and use code LSS for 10% off. Again, that's ModernMammals.com for 10% off with promo code LSS. Don't forget to use our promo code LSS so they know we sent you. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast, Lead Singer Syndrome. I'm your host, Shane Told. Just like every single week for 253 episodes, I believe we're at. That's a wild number. Thanks so much for all the love, all the support. We got a great guest, a great program today for you. Dallin Weeks of I Don't Know How, But They Found Me, he's here. You might also know him from his nearly decade-long stint in Panic at the Disco. He was also in an awesome band back in the day called the Brobecks. This guy is legit. This guy is well-spoken. And don't sleep on this new I Don't Know How But They Found Me album as well. Their debut full-length, surprisingly, I feel like this band has been around for so long, but this is their first album, and it bangs. It kills. And it's out now, so check it out. It's a great conversation. I can't wait for you to hear it. But before we get into that, a few things to take care of. I want to remind you that you can get in touch with me If you've got suggestions for the show or anything else you want to say to me, you can email me. It is leadsingersyndrome at gmail.com, and I read all my emails. I've been so busy lately. I guess it's just because I've said yes to everything. You know, I think when the pandemic hit in mid-March and, you know, it forced to go home, there was this fear of there being nothing to do. And I just started saying yes to everything, and I've continued through to that, and now I find myself almost, geez, what has it been, nine months? My God. I find myself very busy, 
So I'm keeping on, keeping on, but I do have a chance to read all my emails. So send me one, add me to social media. But the thing I want you to do most, actually, the, se- the thing I want you to do second most is add my Twitch channel, which is twitch.tv slash Shane Told. And I'm going live on there all the time. Mike Howell of This Is The New Shit. We're doing episodes basically every week talking about the new records coming out. And you don't want to miss the episodes we have coming out as well because there are going to be some cool end-of-the-year episodes, which, of course, you can still listen to them here. But if you want to get the live vibe, if you want to actually see video of us talking about it, and you know we interact with the chat and all that as well, head over to Twitch, twitch.tv slash Told. And I'm on there playing acoustic some days and all kinds of stuff. It's a great platform, not just for video games. So, yes, add me. I'll say the link one more time. Twitch.tv slash Shane Told. But the number one thing I want you to check out, of course, is the Lead Singer Syndrome All Access Club. Could be the gift that keeps on giving for somebody you know that you know that likes the podcast or likes music or whatever. Head over to leadsingersyndrome.com slash all access for all that information and for as little as six dollars a month it gets you in it helps support this show keep it going every week for free and there's a whole bunch of perks like bonus episodes and access to a great club and merchandise and everything else so there it is the all access club don't miss that either well i'll keep the intro short and this is a pretty short episode actually but you know we're all busy we got things to do we got christmas shopping so If you're done this one and you want more, go back and listen to one of the other 250-something episodes. And if you've listened to them all, join the All Access Club. There's more there. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. Here's my conversation with Dallin Weeks of I Don't Know How, But They Found Me. I'm here with Dallin Weeks. Hello. Dude, hello. Yes, thank you for doing this. Great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to do it. Yeah, lots to talk about. Um, I don't even know where to start, but I guess we should start with the new record. Just came out. Long awaited. Yeah. That's exciting. Long awaited by us, for sure. Right. (laughs) I feel like you guys have been around for a while. You know, like I remember... You know, friends of mine and stuff touring with you guys and hearing about the band and kind of watching you grow. And we do a, a separate bit of the podcast where we talk about the new albums coming out. And your sure. album was the number one, you know, record of the week. Oh, wow. And I was absolutely shocked that it was your first album. I just, you know, couldn't believe it that after all these years, <laughs> finally we have an album and it's a good one. Well, yeah, it was a weird time frame. You know, definitely not traditional uh trajectory for bands that are starting out um like the first year or so that we did this band it was all in secret because ryan and i were both still employed in other bands at the time and we didn't want to exploit that fact or sure 
exploit those fans or anything or capitalize on that. So we, we did a secret shows for about a year and had all these songs and our own timeline in mind for releasing this record. But as momentum sort of started to, you know, build faster than we could catch up with it, uh, Fearless Records stepped in and, and we ended up touring for a while off of a five song EP. Yep that was supposed to be part of this record. So really we've been sitting on a lot of these songs for a while, but recording the the album properly got put on hold in favor of building the band up a little bit more and, and touring for a while. Right. So it, it's been, that's been the challenge for us is, is having all this extra material that we've just been waiting to get recorded and released into the world. So we finally got to do that. So right. it feels really good to, to finally be there. Right, for sure. I mean, what is traditional anymore, though? I mean, no bands exactly, seem to yes. do, you know, that the traditional method, you know, is is completely dead. When when younger bands ask me, like, hey, uh, I'm starting a band, like, what what do I do? At this point, I'm like, I don't know, fucking TikTok? Like, I don't know what, I don't <laughs> exactly. know what a band does anymore when they're starting out. <laughs> exactly. There is, there is no, uh, there's no, you know, playbook anymore. Right. So it's it's all kind of everybody grabbing at straws and and hopefully, you know, if you keep working and you don't give up, you'll have that that lightning strike for you, that the little piece of luck that everybody needs to have happen. That's right. And it seems like you've finally gotten it uh with this band. I know, you know, your first band, the band that you put, you know, so much of your time and life into was the Brobecks. Yeah. Yeah. Straight out of Utah and you know, a, a band that's very critically acclaimed, something that, you know, people are still listening to on Spotify, like pretty decent, solid Spotify numbers on there, too, you know. So, you know, talk to me about that band, you know, how you got your start off in this crazy world and I guess the humble beginnings of Dallin Weeks, if you don't mind. Sure. Yeah. Well, I guess it does really start with the Brobecks in my early 20s. Um, that's sort of when I discovered that there was a, a very active and thriving music scene in my city here in Salt Lake City uh, that I wasn't aware of when I was a teenager, but became aware in, in my early 20s and got started with the, the Brobecks. And that's the band that made me really solidify that, oh, well, I have to do music forever. Um, nice. Because it was, it was the first real musical project I had where, you know, people came to see us play that weren't related to us, you know? Yeah. So, so uh, that's what made me really make that decision. But uh, like a lot of artists out there, we we struggled and we sort of hit this plateau, and you know found some regional success. But that next step never really came. Right. So that so that lightning that I was talking about, that lightning you got to catch, that little piece of luck, we never really had that. So we ended up you know going separate ways and being employed in other various positions. I ended up getting a job with. Panic at the Disco, and I was really lucky to, to have that job for as long as I did. For sure, for sure. I mean, I don't want to harp on that too long, but I I mean, how how do they find you? Uh, pardon the pun. Uh, well, it, it was because of the Brobex, really, because we we did get uh, a good handful of label offers back in the day, but mm-hmm. nothing that was worth taking, really. Um, especially for, for me, since I had a you know, a, a, a very new family at the time that I needed care of. Right. And some of these contracts that were being sent our way were essentially going to be making no money at all for, for years and years and years. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the, these offers that we were taking, whether it was that or whether it was 
labels coming in saying, hey, you know, Dallin, we want to sign you, but you have to get your band. That also wasn't something I was willing to do. So, you know, those offers, they came and went. And, um, but that's how we ended up on Panic's Radar uh, because uh, Fueled by Ramen, their label was one of the, the labels that came knocking on the Brobeck storage and right. end up working out. But whenever Panic had a couple people that, uh, that quit and they wanted to, to carry on, the head of their label reached out to me and said, hey, Panic is doing this tour. Do you want to come out and audition? So I did, and they ended up using me and kept using me for about a year before they asked me to join the band as a full-time member. And uh, then I spent the next almost decade doing that. Yeah. That first tour was with Blink-182, wasn't it? Yeah, you know, it was. It was really strange to go from, you know, doing Brobex where, you know, at, at the most, Brobex sell out a 200-person room. Yeah. So, so, so does it go from that to playing a 20,000-person arena over the course of, like, a week? Well, definitely, you know, intimidating to, to be able <laughs> I can't to look out into a crowd. And, right. and the, the faces, they just keep going and going and going. And, so it was, <laughs> it, was, uh, it, was, it was really intimidating and hard to get used to. I don't know if you ever really get used to that. Right, right. No, but, I mean, for you, though, and, and reading about you and knowing a little bit about kind of your influences – I mean, it seems like you're more influenced by, you know, stuff that maybe people would call before your time. Like, we're, we're the same age. We're both born in 1981. So, you know, mm -hmm. for me, like, Blink-182 was a big influence, you know, and the, the mm -hmm. pop punk and the Warp Tour stuff. I feel like even though you are somewhat, you know, associated with that, for you, your influences lie, you know, with the, the generation kind of before. Yeah, it, it is bizarre to have that... Um... To have that association simply by, you know, the, the jobs that I've had is kind of interesting because, yeah. um, you know, there, there's no denying that, that that those genres and those kind of bands have had, had huge success and have been largely influential. But things like pop punk and emo music and and really, really that whole Warped Tour scene, it's not anything that ever really touched my life or connected with me. So right. I kind of missed that that whole movement and uh you know when it was going on i was listening to stuff like uh the killers and louis the 14th and franz ferdinand and uh you know i'm a robot stuff like that yeah uh so th so that was my early 2000s when, when that whole uh when the whole pop punk thing was going on so i, I kind of missed that wave so, so that's that's not something that ever really uh influenced me so it, it's it's odd somewhat to have an association to that world simply because I, I played in Panic at Disco for a number of years. I, I understand it yeah. because yeah. I, I feel like a lot of the same people uh, make uh, lowest common denominator connections. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a sort of human nature, you know, the, the straight line. And, and so people are able to go, oh, well, you played in this band, you must like this kind of music when right. it's not always necessarily true no it's definitely not necessarily true I, but i mean your drummer ryan shit i've known ryan for 15 years at least um yeah. he, he definitely was inspired by those bands no he absolutely was he was he was uh he's he's definitely got that stuff in his musical dna <laughs> right on man so you say before your early 20s when you kind of realized that there was a thriving scene in in salt lake city you know you didn't know about it but you were i guess practicing cutting your teeth as a teenager 
you know, I know you're you were from a Mormon household, probably fairly strict about, you know, some rules. Uh, what was that like growing up uh, for you and, and how was music playing a role in that? You know, it's, it's not something that uh, that I have a resentment towards. Like, I'm really grateful for, for my upbringing. And um, but but when it came to, to music, it's not, you know, as rock music in particular is not something that I was ever encouraged to. Like I had that interest since I was about three years old. I remember driving past like a pawn shop window and seeing a guitar hanging there and I, telling mom and dad, I, I want that. I, I didn't even know what it was, but I know that I wanted it. It will be mine. Oh, yes, it will be mine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So the, over the years, they kind of indulged that in the in the way of you know, Christmas time they'd buy me like a toy guitar or something, and then oh, I yeah. was thrilled to have it. But it wasn't until I was fifteen where I was like, I, I've got to go get a real guitar. So I saved up all this money, went to a pawn shop, and bought myself uh, a guitar, like a real one. And they were so bummed that I had spent this money on this complete waste of time that would take me nowhere and <laughs> ruin my life. <laughs> So, wow. you know, because because when I was a kid, you know, rock bands and, you know, rock musicians, there was that heavy, heavy cliche of sex, drugs and rock and roll. And right. the biggest bands at the time when I was a kid growing up are like these, you know, Sunset Strip hair metal yeah. stuff that I don't really like at all. Like your Motley Crue's and your uh, Guns N' Roses and that so that's what they associated rock and roll music with like if our son plays guitar he's going to turn into one of these pieces of trash <laughs> <laughs> but uh but as i grew older especially in the 90s i became interested in a lot of artists that had this particular set of uh of, of uh, values or, or an ethos really when it came to to making music it was more about making art for the sake of making art rather than perpetuating some lifestyle of partying and and uh drugs and things like that bands like uh you know even bands that did have their problems like uh nirvana right um, you know they weren't glorifying the kind of lifestyle they just wanted to make music uh same with like pearl jam or even some of the stuff that I was more into, like Weezer and Benfold Five, you know, these were bands that were making music for the sake of making music, not because they wanted to, you know, to spend their life partying. Absolutely. You start this thing with Ryan. Um, it seems like at first nobody knew what was going on. You guys were denying everything. I still don't know if it's a genius marketing strategy or <laughs> if you just honestly weren't sure what was going on because you were still immersed with panic. Ryan was still immersed with falling in reverse. You know, I mean, a lot of times, you know how musicians are. Hey, let's just play some tunes. Let's get together. There isn't always a lot of talk of like, okay, this is the, the master plan. And in 2020, this crazy shit's going to happen and we're going to put out our first album. You know, like yeah. no one saw this coming. So yeah. I just wonder the initial foresight that you may or may not have had you know um when you guys kind of started out well that's uh, the beauty of everything that's happened with us so far is that everything that we've done has sort of been born out of necessity and and p- spending that first year playing in secret or so uh you know we definitely didn't have an agenda we just wanted to to make music be creative and and have fun playing playing music because we were both in similar situations 
doing a particular job working with a different band for so long that it had become just that, a, a job. And, you know, I, I find that, you know, it, it, in the world of music, if, if it becomes not fun anymore, then you need to change something because that's what this is supposed to be about first and foremost. Um, so, so we got together to do this just to remember how to have fun again playing music and, and not have it feel like we're punching a time card or, or something like that. And so, so play, playing in secret and denying everything wasn't so much a, a marketing ploy rather than a way of us to be able to do this under the radar just for ourselves. Also without really uh, bringing down the wrath of you know, anybody that we were working for at the time. Um, so, so it kind of just snowballed out of our control. And, um, you know, what a, what a great problem to have, though. Yeah. Yeah, so it, the, the momentum started rolling faster than we could keep up with it. And eventually, I think we both came to this realization where we were like, well, we could do this instead. Yeah. So, so we kept, you know, keep, we, we, jobs for as long as it made sense and we knew that eventually the way things were going those paths would diverge mm -hmm. and once diverge we would use this because we were both you know just really hungry to to have something that was ours where there were no rules or restrictions on what you can do and what you can say and what you can create yeah that's <laughs> that's a kind of a scary thing to go into though isn't it i mean especially for oh, you yeah. know you know being in panic at the disco for the better part of a decade like you said ryan's uh, uh, old band doing very well and all of a sudden i mean you you say you've got you've got two kids um you know you're not like a 25 year old kid living in your parents mm -hmm. basement oh figure something yeah. else out this is real life yeah, it's, it's very scary to, to because, you know, if you're a musician, then to be able to have a steady paycheck, like you've, you've crossed the finish line, you've won. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, yeah. that's, that's the goal of anyone who wants to play music for a living is, even if it's not to be, you know, some rich, famous rock star, to be able to keep your bills paid by playing music, like that's the dream. And I had accomplished that. So to... To walk away from that and head off into the unknown with this thing that was showing promise but has no guarantees was was definitely, you know, a little bit daunting, but uh, ultimately, ultimately worth it. For um, sure. For because sure. I, I would much rather, you know, I, and I thought about it for a while. I, I would much rather play to to playing a room full of two hundred people uh, that really cared about you know, what it was that we were creating rather than be an anonymous musician on a stage full of 20,000 people playing yeah. someone else's music. Well, that's the, that's funny though. That kind of has come full circle. Right. And I was going to ask mm -hmm. you that question earlier, but I didn't want to be like offensive to say, you know, you go from the Brobacks where it's like your thing, it's your band, you're the front man to playing in front of 20,000 people with panic you know, um, opening for another band where you're just mm -hmm. kind of another guy. I mean, yeah. some people's ego, it's, they don't like that. It's just a, it's not the right thing when it's not their thing anymore, no matter how big it is. And that's, and that's another thing is that, uh, every, everything that I've, I've done musically has, has always been born out of necessity. So even when it comes to things like being a front man, it's, it's not something that's ever been on my bucket list or, <laughs> or right. my goal. It, it's just been, 
the only way that I've ever been able to make my songs happen is by doing them myself. So that was the case with uh, the Brobecks, and that's the case with this band, too. It's not that, oh, oh my God, I have to be a lead singer, I have to be in the spotlight. It's, I, I don't, I've never had that desire or that drive. It's, it's more that I have the songs that I want to create, and it seems like, historically at least, the only way that I've ever been able to make them is by doing it myself. Yeah, no, no, and it's amazing this being a show about lead singers, how many people really never set out to be a lead singer. Um, that That's what yeah. they're known for. Uh, I'd say yeah. 80 to 90% of people probably are like, I don't know, I'm a drummer or whatever. I just, mm-hmm. just know, I was the only guy in the room that could carry a tune. You know, that yeah. that's talked about all the time. So here we go. Here's another another example of it. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. dude, so, so I mean, I, I assume, you know, this pandemic hit, uh, it sounds like the record was already recorded. Uh, I don't know where you were in the middle of March when when everything went south. But walk me through the steps uh, of of how this this record came to be. When you decided, hey, we've got to postpone it, and just kind of where you know where you were at in your life uh, uh, when this all yeah, happened. Yeah, so so we had the majority of the the record written uh, when we released our first EP. Um, but like I said, Fearless Records came in and said, we want to put you on tour for a while and, and capitalize on this heat that you guys have for a while. So we did that and put to recording the rest of the album on hold. So, so everything that was on the EP was meant to be part of this, this record. It was all always meant to be one thing, but that time in between allowed us to write a couple more songs too. So, you know, I, it probably wouldn't have ended up being exactly the same had we done it as originally planned. But we finally got the chance to go record the thing in February. Okay. And that's when that's COVID started to show up in the news. Yep. And by the time we had wrapped recording, it was uh, late February, early March. So that's when things like lockdowns and stuff started to happen. So I flew home and we had to mix the record via email, which not mm. ideal. No. Uh, so that ended up taking a long time. I think every song had more than more than a dozen emails, you know, trying to dial in uh, this stuff. So that yeah. took a long time. That was a major delay. Yeah. And then it was a matter of sort of navigating this new idea of lockdowns and not being able to tour and everyone grabbing at straws. How, well, how do you release an album in this climate? How do you promote it? But uh Luckily, we had a team that was really stoked on the record that we had made and didn't want to hesitate. So um, we, we all felt like it had been delayed enough um, from the yeah. time that we had been touring on off of the EP. So for sure, we just we just decided to, to give it the green light despite everything that's going on. Um, and oddly enough, it's been it's been great to be able to put a record out and to as much as we want to be out there playing shows, like to be able to be at home with my family and promote this record. And like, has been something I've never experienced before, but I'm really grateful to, you know, that's been sort of the silver lining and all of it for me. No, I imagine this has been the longest you've probably been home in your pretty, basically your adult life. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. So is, is that, is that an amazing feeling? Is it, is it harder than you expected? Well, it, it, everyone has those hard days. I think uh, the yeah. stress and the paranoia that surrounds COVID and everything, it sort of builds up from time to time. So every once in a while you have that that day where the, the, the rain clouds sort of 
hanging over your head everywhere you go. And that's the day when my wife was like, go down to your studio and work for a while or something like <laughs> Get, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, that makes sense. Um, well, I want to talk about the record a little bit more. I know you yeah. worked you worked with um, Tim Pagnotta, who mm-hmm. from Sugar Cult, a band, a yeah. very very much a Warp Tour band at one point. Um, you know th- what kind of blew my mind about this record? Well, there's a couple things, but the production for sure. I mean, mm-hmm. some of the sounds that you managed to find i'm not talking about bass tones or drum tones either you know some of the other instrumentation they managed to sound original but also classic and that's not easy to do and i kind of wonder how does that work does that something that you know you're doing in your basement studio and you're kind of saying hey tim this is kind of what i want and he kind of dials it in or is it back and forth or well tim was really great about uh letting us experiment and and be get weird with with sounds yeah um so and another thing that i think helped us dial that in was we created a set of rules for ourselves before we started making the record and these were rules that for all intents and purposes we knew that we would break them at some point (laughs) But uh, rules were like, okay, we're going to limit ourselves to three specific keyboards. And any of the synth sounds that happen on this record are going to come from only synthesizers. And another rule that we had was no guitars. Um, So we went for as long as we could making this record, following those rules, knowing that eventually we would break them because like, (laughs) we're not... We're not adverse to guitar. It's a definitely, you know, a, a, a tool that comes in handy sonically. So there's, uh, it, but we wanted to treat it more like a supportive instrument rather than have it be front and center. A, a good example would be a record like Elvis Costello's This Year's Model, which is one of my favorite records ever. And uh, the way that guitar is treated on that record is more like the supporting Role, right. Like the, the keyboards and the bass are the ones that do all of the heavy lifting when it comes to melody. Right. So we wanted to treat guitar that way. And um, a lot of this, the, the synthesis stuff came from these uh, vintage keyboards that we had. Two of them belonged to me and one of them belonged to Tim. And um, yeah, the vast majority of synthesizer sounds came from vintage equipment. And, and then we did a lot of experimentation with uh, tape machines and and tape loops and things like that too. So I, I think it all came together pretty nicely. It helped, helped it to have a kind of a vintage feel to it. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the, the other thing, note I have here is just how you guys can seemingly exist in so many different musical spaces while still having a cohesive sound. And the, the reference that I'm pulling from mostly is the, uh, from the gallows, I believe the song is called. And it's, oh, yeah. it, it almost sounds like if the fifties were in the future, if that makes any sense. No, yeah. The The original demo for that song uh, was based off of the Ink Spots, which is this old jazz uh, group that I love from the 1930s. They had this really great formula for writing songs. If, if you if you look them up, you'll, you'll notice that they follow this pattern with every song that they wrote. Uh, it's one of those groups that people are familiar with without really knowing it. Um, right, right. You know, I don't want to set the world on fire. Like that sort of stuff. 
Yeah. Uh, so it was based on that stuff. And that was the original demo, like barbershop harmony quartet, barbershop quartet harmonies, I should say. Yeah. And um, things like that. But when we went into the studio, we sort of disassembled it and put it back together. And it ended up sounding like Lawrence Welk on acid. And I really <laughs> loved how it turned out. <laughs> Absolutely. And, um, and I mean, so many bright spots. We could probably talk about almost every track on this record, but uh, leave me alone. Obviously, track number one, it's kind of been a smash hit. I mean, it's a great song, a great choice for the first single, but I kind of wonder how that choice was made. Um, it must not have been easy uh, with all the songs to say, okay, this is the one we're going to kind of come out of the gate with. I think everyone just kind of uh, kind of gravitated towards Leave Me Alone as, as the process went on. Um, you know, that that's one of those songs that almost felt like it wrote itself. Hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I, and I mostly did it at my kitchen table before we went into the studio with, with Tim. So by the time I think we went into, to lay it down, it was uh, 90% done. But, um, but we, we it off and kept working on the record, but, uh, I, I don't know. It, it felt, it felt like an easy, easy decision as far as everybody on the team. Like, okay, this, right, this right, is right. the one that we want to go to radio. Right. And the video. So, um yeah. can we talk about the video? Is, was that yeah. pre was that pre COVID? Like it was, when it, it was post COVID. It was oh it was post COVID. Okay. again, it's it's a matter of, you know, things being done out of necessity. We found ourselves right. in this weird moment of having to promote a single on a record. Uh, you know, how do you make a music video but keep everybody safe in the middle of this pandemic? So that's where the idea started to formulate of incorporating things like masks and yeah. quarantine and social distancing and all this plastic sheeting and you know, sterile environments. And <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, it was definitely a reflection of of the time that we're living in. Yeah, yeah, and what a time! What a time to be alive, man. Um, <laughs> I guess you guys probably had shows postponed. Was like. What's going on there? Like, what does the future hold for you guys? I mean, do you have any plans? Have you been doing any live streams or, or anything like that? Um, yeah, we've been doing live streams, and we recorded a few different sessions with uh, a full lineup of live musicians at a studio here in Utah. Um, some really talented people that live around here, uh, a guy named uh, Robbie Connolly who plays with uh, The Killers, yeah, and then an, another really talented guy named Stu Maxfield who did a co-write on the record with me co-wrote uh, sugar pills we got those guys together into a studio and we played all this stuff live um over three or four days and uh, i think a lot of that footage is still waiting to be seen like it's being doled out bit by bit so um you know for for this outlet or for that radio station or, or whatever it is right. but we're gonna do more stuff like that and uh you know anytime that an opportunity arises to play a show, we sign up for it and we want to take it. And and that's happened a couple of times, but as we've gotten closer to actually making these dates happen, they get shut down because of new restrictions or, or whatever. And that's fine because we don't want to play if it comes at the expense of anybody's health or, right. uh, you know, safe, safety is the most important thing. So. Right. Right. No, we did. Uh, my band did a drive, a drive in show. And that was pretty nice. awesome. I'm surprised there aren't more of those happening. I feel like, obviously, it's cold up here in the north, but I feel like they could be doing those, and that would be something everybody could enjoy. I'm surprised they're not happening more. Yeah, it's, it's something that we're definitely keeping an eye out for. And early on, there was some talk of, of doing a social 
show at a soccer stadium here in Salt Lake City. Oh, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, uh, the governor came out with some new COVID restrictions and that ended up being shut down. So it's kind of like we, we make these plans and we hope for the best, but uh, just prepare for them not to happen, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. That's the way it's been this, this whole year, man. Well, uh, anything yeah. else to tell the people? Uh, I don't think I have too much else to, to ask you. Just really enjoyed the latest record. Thanks for putting it out. No, I appreciate you having me and I uh, appreciate uh, the support that we've been shown uh, over the course of, of doing this little rock band. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate you uh, having us on. Absolutely, Dallin. And I'm going to play a new track uh, from the record. Uh, do you mind picking it? Which one uh, Which one would you like me to play? Oh, boy. How about, how about, you know what? Go ahead and play from the gallows. Perfect. That's probably the weirdest track on the record. And if you can get behind that one, then then I think you've passed the I don't know how test. I love it. No, the instrumentation on this one is incredible. I really enjoyed it. So, Thanks, man. Hey, man. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Thank you. Here it is from the gallows on Lead Singer Syndrome. From the Gallows, 
from I don't know how's new album Rasmataz, which is a very cool album. We talk about the production and you know, we touch on some of those things in this episode, of course, but I think it's understated a little bit just how cool this record is. And I feel like this is the kind of thing you could put on at Christmas time, you know, around the holidays with the family, and they might be into it, you know? You can get away with putting it on. It isn't, uh, there's no screaming to be found, that's for sure. Next week, I will be back with another great episode. Soupy, Mr. Dan Campbell of The Wonder Years will be on the show. A long-awaited return. I think he was episode number two. So he's going to go from episode number two to episode 254, (laughs) which is amazing. But the Wonder Years, they're doing lots of cool stuff. Some stuff just announced, so don't miss it. Make sure that you smash the subscribe button on whatever you're listening to. Check out the All Access Club, and that's about it. Peace and love, everybody. I'll see you next week, and maybe on Twitch. Follow us on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Shane told.